You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So today's passage, which you just heard read, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25, includes some amazing facts about the Holy Spirit. And my goal in this sermon is to tell you seven of them. I want to tell you seven facts about the Holy Spirit so that you might know more of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and so that we as a church might know more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our church. Now, if you just heard me say that I have a seven-point sermon, you heard me right, okay? (laughs) So we should get started. Now, I want to just say, um, just to be completely honest with you, I don't want to preach in the flesh. I just was telling Melissa before I came up here, looking at the clock. I don't want to preach in the flesh. I need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And so I want to ask that you pray with me as as I lead us now in prayer, asking for that. Father, this morning, I, I want to preach about your Holy Spirit. And I want us to hear about your Holy Spirit in the power of your Holy Spirit. And so together now, we ask for his power in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for point number one, it's more like a caveat. is simply that, number one, number one, the Spirit-filled life is the Christian life. And the reason I want to start here is because I don't want to give the impression that anything we're talking about today is some kind of far-fetched, super spiritual, unrealistic ideal. Okay, It's not. There are four verbs in this passage related to the Holy Spirit. Paul commands us to walk by the Spirit, verse 16. He says that we are led by the Spirit, verse 18. He says that we live by the Spirit, verse 25. He says that we keep in step with the Spirit also in verse 25. And so this walking and living and being led by the Spirit, this keeping in step with the Spirit, all of that is what makes a life that is filled by the Holy Spirit. What Paul describes here could be summed up as, I think, the Spirit-filled life. And we shouldn't think that the Spirit-filled life is something way out there that we hope to reach one day if we just work hard enough. It's not what it is. But actually, the Spirit-filled life is the life that is yours right now because of your faith in Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. And to live the Christian life is to live by the Spirit. And so I just want to be clear here at the start that this passage and this sermon is for every single one of us who trust in Jesus. No matter where you are in your faith. This passage is about the Christian life. The Spirit-filled life is the Christian life. Number two. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to walk the road of love. I want you to see the connection between verse 16 and the verses that come before it, which we looked at last week. Last week we talked about the dichotomy that emerges in chapter 5. There are two different roads that we see there. Remember the road of strife and the road of love. And, And we as the church, 
we must choose the road of love, right? Amen? We choose the road of love. We choose to walk down that road. We, through love, serve one another. But how do we do that? How actually do we love one another? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 starts with this little phrase here, but I say. And when Paul uses this phrase, it carries the idea, it carries the idea more of, of he's saying, hey, this is what I'm saying, right? But Paul uses this phrase to emphasize something he's about to say in relation to what he said before it. And so think back to last week. I want you to hear how this is connected. Last week, to paraphrase Paul in the verses before, Paul is saying basically, don't walk down the road of strife. Walk down the road of love. What I'm saying is this. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you hear the connection? Verse 16 explains what came before it. How we walk down the road of love is to walk by the Spirit. And so our passage this week just continues the dichotomy that emerged last week, except now we're not looking at two different roads, but we're looking at two different ways. The way of the flesh or the way of the Spirit. The road of strife and dissension and conflict, that's traveled by the flesh. But if we're going to walk down the road of love, it's going to be by the Spirit who produces the fruit that we see in verse 22 and verse 23. We'll look at that in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see the connection between this week and last week. All that we talked about last week concerning the road of love, not indulging the flesh, through love serving others, embracing the depths of love, all of that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to walk down the road of love. Number three, the Holy Spirit empowers individuals for the corporate good. Now, I'm basically going to just skip this point for the sake of time. And because I wrote a letter to you on Friday about this point, is in the email on Friday. Less than 45% of you have read it so far. <laughs> but you can go back and find it or go to our, our website. In short, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what the point is here. I just want you to know, I want you to understand this, grasp this. When Paul talks about the struggle between the spirit and the flesh, he's talking about a struggle in the individual members of the whole church. That makes sense? So he's talking to the whole church, but he's talking about a struggle that plays out at the individual level. We each as individuals must battle our flesh and fight our sin. And when we do, it affects good for the whole church. The Holy Spirit empowers individual members for the good of the corporate body. Number four, and you're thinking, man, he's moving along. Just, just hold on, okay? <laughs> We're going to slow down here. Number four. The Holy Spirit makes evident in us a deep historical struggle. Look at verse 17. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. See that? There's a struggle here between the spirit and the flesh. And before I say more, I want to explain just a little bit about what this word flesh means, okay? The word flesh. I realize that the word flesh is kind of like Christian jargon, okay? You know what I mean? What I mean is that if, if after service today, a group of us Christians got together and one person says to this group of Christians, hey, I'm really battling my flesh, everyone in that group is going to know what he's talking about, okay? But if you say that same sentence tomorrow in a work meeting, people are going to like recommend a dermatologist or something. They're not going to know what you mean when you say the word flesh. So let me, you know, I realize we should know this. It's okay to use flesh in a jargony way because when Christians are shaped by the Bible, when we're shaped by the word of God, we use words and say words in the meaning that the Bible has. And in the Bible, the word flesh has a particular meaning. And so what is that meaning, right? What does Paul mean when he uses the word flesh? Well, ultimately, the context for every use determines its meaning. And sometimes the word flesh can refer to physical existence in this life. That's how Paul uses the word in Galatians 2.20, just a couple chapters before, when Paul says, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What Paul's saying is that this, this physical life I live in the world, his flesh in that use is just basically his bodily life. It's just his existence here. But then there are other times when Paul uses the word flesh to mean our sinful, fallen nature. That's what he means in Galatians chapter 5, and that's typically how we use the word when we talk to one another as brothers and sisters. Our flesh is our sinful nature. And, and this is actually part of a central theme in all of Paul's letters. Okay, so just so you know, this is a super dense topic. And there are, you know, several big books that are written all about this, but I'm going to try to explain it to you in five minutes, all right? And so I want you just to know I need you to track with me as best you can or bear with me, okay? But give me a few minutes here. I think this is important for us to see. It's important that we understand that the flesh as sinful nature and the conflict between the spirit and the flesh, it is fundamentally a historical conflict. The, the Bible teaches us that this world, because of Adam's sin, is fallen. The world is broken and under a curse, and we as humans are also broken and under a curse. We are sinners. We are part of and contributing to this fallen world under Adam. Well, when Jesus came to save us, he came into this fallen world as the true and better Adam. Jesus came to create a new humanity for a new world. And that new world is his kingdom that will ultimately be experienced in the new creation. And so there are two things happening here. In Adam, you have fallen humanity in the order of the old world. 
And then in Jesus, you have new humanity in the order of the new world. See, The old world is current. The new world is future. Except that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that's when the power of the old world was broken and then the power and life of the new world invaded into this old world. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended. And he sent his Holy Spirit to fill his people. And the Holy Spirit is the power and life of the new creation at work in this old creation. The Holy Spirit is the resurrection power of Jesus here now. And where is he here now exactly? He's in you. He's in you. The the power of the new creation, the resurrection power of Jesus that is the Holy Spirit is in you. He's in us who trust in Jesus. And so the new world, this new creation, has overlapped into the old current world. And this overlap is happening mainly in us. The Holy Spirit makes us new creatures in Christ so that we are no longer under the old humanity that is of the old world, but now we are in the new humanity that is of the new world. That's what Paul's saying in verse 18. Verse 18, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, because the law, see, was part of the old age. It was part of the order of the old world. Same thing in verse 24. After Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit, he says, against such things there is no law. What he means is that the law doesn't govern the new humanity. Not in this new world. Under the order of the new world, we are not governed by the law and its demands, but we are led by the Spirit. The law of God is written on our hearts. Now we belong to Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous by God. We are saved from the wrath to come. And we have a bright, listen, we have a bright and glorious future. But here's the thing. We still live here, right? We're all right now, new creatures as we are. We're here in an old world, stuck in our old flesh, in these old bodies, struggling. Sinful, fallen nature, still a part of who we are. We're spiritually, listen, we're spiritually resurrected and made new. But we are not yet perfected because our full consummated redemption will be the redemption of our bodies at the end time resurrection when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Romans 8. Until then, until Jesus returns, we have this overlap, right? There's this struggle. And the struggle, fundamentally, I want you to know, is historical. It's a struggle between the new creation and the old creation. 
It's between two worlds, two humanities that are in conflict. The old is passing away, the new is taking over, and this struggle is mainly taking place in us. The struggle in you, the struggle in us, between the spirit and the flesh, is actually the front lines of a deep historical cosmic struggle between the new creation and the old and I just think that's something we should know okay because we felt the conflict here right we 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 have felt the conflict we get the conflict part but I want you to know where it's coming from this is central to Paul's theology it's in all of his letters the Holy Spirit makes evident in us a deep Historical struggle. Number five, the Holy Spirit is our answer to the flesh. So there's this deep historical struggle that's going on here. And where the the rubber meets the road, as it were, for us personally, is that we still have the capacity to sin. And we still do sin. Although we are new creatures in Christ, although we are part of the new humanity in Christ, there are still times when we think and or speak and or do things that are sinful. Sometimes we think or speak or do wrong. Anybody got an idea what I'm talking about here? Not alone here? We get this, but we know the conflict in here. The desires of the sinful nature in me, verse 17, in you, they're against the desires of the Holy Spirit in me, in you. The desires of the Holy Spirit in me are against the desires of the sinful nature in me because they are opposed to each other. The Holy Spirit and my flesh are each trying to hinder the other. That's the struggle. But put this way, if we just looked at verse 17, it might sound like the spirit and the flesh are just trading punches. Right? Maybe you think that way. We might think that the spirit and the flesh just go back and forth with even hits. But that's not actually what Paul's saying. Look at verse 16. Now verse 17 describes the struggle. But it's actually verse 16 that tells us the answer to the struggle. Because of this struggle in verse 17, because this struggle exists, Paul says before it in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. The answer to this struggle, the way that you are not stuck, the way that we are not stuck in a back and forth battle is that we can actually walk by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit can lead us, lead us. He can lead us. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And then that comes with a promise. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify The desires of the flesh. And these words are important. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the sinful flesh will disappear. Wouldn't that be great? It's not what he says. The flesh is still there. The flesh 
still has its desires. But if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify those desires. You, you will not give in to those desires, as it were. And, and Paul means this in the strongest possible terms. He uses here what's called an emphatic negation. In, in the original, it's like Paul is saying, you most certainly, absolutely will not. Paul says, hey, look. There's a struggle in each one of us. There's a struggle in us. And it's the struggle of two worlds colliding. It's a deep historical struggle, but it's not an even match. If you walk by the Holy Spirit, you will absolutely not gratify the desires of your flesh. Yes, there is a struggle, but the Holy Spirit is the answer to the struggle. And what this means for us as Christians, practically is that when it comes to our struggle against the flesh, it is not like the outcome is still undecided as for who's going to win. Romans 8. The outcome's not undecided. It's not that we, we need something else. It's not, it's not that we're, we're, we're lacking something else in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the answer now to our flesh. And number six, number six, the Holy Spirit produces in us new character. So the Holy Spirit is not just holding back our flesh. But actually the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is applying His new creation power in our lives. And He is affecting new qualities to emerge in our character. And they're called the fruit of the Spirit. Paul names nine. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. And while it's true, and this is true, while it's true that there are certain personalities that might correlate with certain of these fruit, I want us to be sure we know that the fruit of the Spirit is not, it is not about personality traits. Okay? These are not natural behaviors. The list of natural behaviors is in verses 19 to 21. Paul calls the list of natural behaviors works of the flesh. And in these verses, really, it's just a sampling of the kind of sins in the world. We know that it's not an exhaustive list because at the end of the list, in verse 21, Paul says, and things like these. Which means there's a lot of sin in the world. From sexual immorality to jealousy from sorcery to division, from orgies to envy and more. There's all kinds of sins in the world. And any one of these sins, any one of these sins, Paul warns us, will condemn us to hell. But the fruit of the Spirit, see, that is something very different. The Holy Spirit's activity and power in our lives actually changes our character. Like verse 22, love, joy, and peace. 
We have a new capacity to truly love. At the foundation here, there's always, anytime you talk about love, the foundation is always our love for God because of his love for us. And then because of our love for God, because of his love for us, we then can love others. And loving others is what Paul has in mind here. And I think he mentions love first because love is really the source of all the other fruit. Like joy. Joy is this fruit that anchors us. Joy doesn't mean that everything is pie in the sky. But it means that we have a glad contentment. A glad contentment that knows no matter what, God is for me. Peace. Love, joy, peace, peace. Peace is like the melody of our hearts. It's the sound of our souls because we're not hustling anymore. We're we're not starving for something out there because we know that in, in Christ we are whole. We're whole. We have peace. Also in verse 22, there's patience and kindness, goodness. Patience includes forbearance and long-suffering. But I, I think it's more than that. Patience doesn't just mean that we put up with stuff, but it means that we have such a confidence in God that we don't try to do God's work for Him. We know how to wait. We know how to wait on God. Kindness. Do you say hey to people when you pass by them? Do you smile at other fellow human beings? Kindness means simply that you have a friendly heart, a friendly heart. And no, again, don't think this is personality straight. I know what you're trying to do. It's not. It's not a personality trait. This is the Holy Spirit's power in your life. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. The Holy Spirit produces in us a disposition that is warm toward other people. Kindness. Goodness. The word goodness here is is the idea of generosity. It means you give. Kids, listen, kids, it means that your first impulse is not to grab it and say, that's mine. Adults, listen, it means that your first impulse is not that you grab it and you say, mine, but you say, there, see that? You say, there, there, have it. And there's verse 22 and 23. Where we see faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness means that you're reliable. It means you're consistent. Not just in your discipleship, but also in your relationships. Gentleness is humility. It means that you don't always rush into a room swinging your elbows. But you step into spaces attuned to the people who are around you and to the, and to the moments that you encounter. G- gentleness, see? Patience. Humility. Self-control comes last. 
And I think self-control comes last because I think self-control is like, mixing metaphors here, but self-control is like the command center for all the other fruit. Self-control is how you wisely harvest and manifest the different fruit at the time that matters. That's important, right? Don't think, don't think that the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit as, as, as you know, character qualities, don't think that they're character qualities that are just random and unpredictable. Right? Don't, don't just sit back and think, I, I really hope I get a patience apple today. You, you see what I'm saying? That's not how it works. We, we, we don't, listen, we don't passively wait for the fruit to just randomly show up. But we want them. All nine of them. And we pray for them. We are passive in the sense that the Spirit produces the fruit. But we're also active in the sense that we harvest the fruit. And we use the fruit. And we show the fruit. As the the fruit grows in us, we grow in the fruit. And that brings us to verses 24 and 25, which is the seventh and the final point. Number seven here. The Holy Spirit applies to us the power of the cross. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Have y'all ever heard people talk before about uh, the idea of life verses? You know what I'm talking about? People will say they have a life verse. You know, the idea is that there's a, a verse or a statement in the Bible that's so, so clear and helpful about God or the Christian life that you just take that verse, you memorize that verse, and you just come back to that verse again and again. The book of Galatians, by the way, has several verses that I think could be that, right? The book of Galatians is full of them. We looked at one a few weeks ago in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Several of you know Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just think about that for the next 50 years, right? Galatians is full of verses like this. Galatians 6.14, which I recite every day. We're going to look at Galatians 6.14 on Easter Sunday. It's another example. This book is full of several great potential life verses, okay? And I think that Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25 could could be one. What Paul says in these two verses basically encapsulates the effect of the gospel in our lives. Look, Look at this, these two verses, and this is it. Notice how verses 24 and 25 are connected back to the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit, 
And then he says, against such things there is no law. Remember, he's saying here that the fruit of the Spirit are part of a different kind of living, like we talked about. The fruit of the Spirit are part of a new world, not the old world. And then in verse 24, that comes next, he explains more of what that means. It's like Paul is saying, hey, the fruit of the Spirit is not part of the old way of life. They're not of the flesh, but they're part of the new way of life. They are of the Spirit. What I mean is that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Paul is saying that the reason, Christian, you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and not the works of the flesh is because your flesh has been crucified. The the way that verses 22 and 23 are possible is because verse 24 has happened. Paul means here precisely what he said in Galatians 2.20. The old you was crucified when Jesus was crucified. Because by faith you are united to Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, your old self died with him. And that is actually what changed your life. I love to hear stories of God's work in people's lives. Our community group is going to be sharing our stories with one another for the next Several meetings. And I love it. I love testimonies. Because everyone who trusts in Jesus has some story about how that happened. Somehow there was a conversion, right? Whether it was gradual or dramatic. At some point, every Christian went from not believing to believing. And with that, oftentimes, there's life change, right? We, we were doing this thing. Right? Or, or, or we were operating that way, but now, because of Jesus, we have changed. That's why it's called conversion, because there's a change. And I love stories. I love hearing stories about that change. This morning, I want to suggest to you that the real life change moment for you, Christian, Though you come to experience it today, the real life change moment happened to you 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross when Jesus died in your place. That is what makes all the difference in your life. See, look, your conversion, your trusting in Jesus, your being united to Jesus by faith. What is happening there is that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes and giving you new life to embrace what Jesus has already done for you. Our old self was crucified at the cross of Christ and now we live by the Spirit who makes us understand the cross of Christ. See, Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25 is just repeating Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, except here is from the perspective of the Holy Spirit's work. The main work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make you see the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes you look at the cross and see there the wisdom of God and the power of God and the love of God. The Holy Spirit makes us to look at the cross and say, because of that, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because of that, 
2,000 years ago because of that. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. And how does Christ live in us? By the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit who makes the cross of Christ wonderful to us. That's what living in the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit is all about. The Holy Spirit applies to us the power of the cross, which is where, Christian, your life was changed. The cross, 2,000 years ago, the cross of Jesus Christ, that is your new life origin story. Which means... The spirit-filled life is the cross-centered life. Which means the spirit-filled life is the cross-centered life is the Christian life. Church, I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ is your everything. Do you feel that? It's everything. It's all we've got. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus took God's wrath in our place. The old you? No more. No more. The old you is no more. The Holy Spirit now lives in us. We live in Him, and He tells us that the cross is where our new life began, which is what we remember at this table. And I want you to know the entire sermon has really been trying to get to this moment because this morning as we receive the bread and the cup, I want to invite you to glory in the cross. We're going to be singing the song, uh, There is a Fountain, which is a very old song. It was written in 1772, so it's exactly 250 years old. And this song was written to help us revel in the cross. Which means, if you don't know the wonder of the cross, this song will make no sense to you. This is a good barometer here. If this song is weird, you don't know the cross. So I want to invite you now as we sing to listen to the words. If the cross of Christ is your hope, if you trust in Jesus, this bread and this cup is for you. And I invite you to take and eat and drink and by the power of of the Holy Spirit, behold the wonder of the cross. His body is the true bread. Let us serve him.